This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Yesterday on this show, I want to pick up where we were talking yesterday for a little bit. I had Ward 7 counselor Donna Skelly on, and we were chatting about, if you were here, you know what we're talking about. If you're not, I'll explain it for the next 30 seconds. We were chatting about a newly released forum research poll in which 90%, of Ontarians said they were unsatisfied with how public money was spent by all levels of government on infrastructure projects. They felt that governments, municipal, provincial, federal, were way too loose with taxpayer money and paid way too much. Now, of course, this likely in a lot of ways stemmed from that story in Toronto that we heard a few weeks ago about the stairs that the city said it couldn't build because it was going to cost 150000 and a local resident went out and built the stairs himself for like $500. That's where this starts from. But Councillor Skelly pointed out last night that she has tried in the time she's been on council to get a number of things built. And as she has done this, she's discovered that the costs to get stuff done are exorbitant. And then when she was surprised by this and called around to companies that don't, weren't necessarily building for public sector stuff, then they were, she was calling companies that do private sector work, the cost, if she was to hire one of them, which she couldn't, but the cost that they were charging was way less than what the companies charging the public were going to be. So a listener last night who was listening to this made a great suggestion, a terrific suggestion, which I wanted to follow up on. He said, you know who you should have on? Because there's a guy on council who is not only a longtime city councillor, but he's also worked in the construction industry for a long, long time. He's covered both these worlds. He's intersected in these things. He can probably explain why this happens. That would be Ancaster Councillor Lloyd Ferguson, who joins you now. Councillor, thanks for doing this today. I'm glad to be on your show. I'm just chased by brain about a companic membrane. I'm glad you made it clear it wasn't someplace embarrassing. Yeah, no, anyone who calls in and says somewhere that you wouldn't want to show someone is... um, you know, yeah, it, it would be wrong, but well, let I'm just, me... I'm just running through my head what he got two of, and, and uh, of course, I, the, I guess the years left, but I don't know. Well, uh, there, it's, it could be anywhere on the body, so the tympanic membrane is the quiz question. Where is that? Anyway, let's get to this, because I thought Councillor Skelly brought up some really interesting stuff yesterday when she was talking specifically about two things. She was trying to get a splash pad built in her ward that she found the cost to do that was exorbitant. She then reached out to a private contractor and the cost that they would have charged was way less. And then there was a bathroom in a park in her ward that she wanted to get built and it was the same situation. So I'm trying to find out, is, first of all, is this commonplace? Do we find, and you've been in the business, private and public, do we find that the costs when people are charging a government, Lloyd, are much, much higher than if they were doing it privately? Absolutely not. I mean, um, 95% of the sales, uh, when I was running Dufferin Construction, was a $450 million a year company. 95% were to governments, uh, primarily airports and highways, and, and to a lesser extent, some municipalities. And I tell you, you've got to bid those things tight and bid them cheap, or you'll never be the low bidder. The procurement method that the uh, governments use is a tendering system, and uh, you know you submit your envelope, and you don't get a chance to change it. You don't get a chance to negotiate afterwards, and, um, and so I know how tight it is to bid. Now there's there's little better margins when you get to the big, big, big projects because there's less players. But you get to a typical 
road reconstruction like Wilson Street's going on now or a sewer and water main project, you're getting 12, 14, 15 bidders. And I'll tell you, you're getting some sharp numbers. Now, there's also, your listeners need to know, there's a big difference between what it costs to construct and what the total cost is because you have to design it. You have to do archaeological uh, assessments. You have to, you know, make sure your uh, stormwater management uh, meets specifications, i.e. post-development does not exceed pre-development peak flow. So, you know, we put our spray pad in at Ancaster, and you had to build a big oversized sanitary sewer and a big catchment area that's below the ground to hold back the water that's running off, and so it come off five tennis courts and a spray pad. That all adds to the cost. So the contractor cost might be 65 to 70%. The rest is that other soft cost that you're obliged to do because the government now states you must do archaeological tests. You've got to do uh, get approvals from conservation authorities, and uh, there's about 15 different agencies. That all takes money uh, to get these approvals done, and you've got to build it to current standards. And, and so to simply call up... Uh, a guy who might put a spray pad in, and typically you would put a cheap price out when a counselor calls you because you want to get a call back uh, when they're really ready to go. But it doesn't include a slew of other things that's necessary to put in. Are those specifications, though, that, that various levels of government, because in some cases it's the city, in some cases it might be the province, it may even be the feds, I suppose, in some cases, are those then becoming onerous? Or, or have we passed onerous a long time ago? Well, the public expects it to be built right. And nothing will draw criticism quicker than when you build something that doesn't uh, withstand the test of time. Uh, you know, roads and other uh, infrastructure is is being pounded all day, every day, under traffic. So uh, there's a thing called an AASHTO standards. It's an American standard for, you know, depending on axle loads that will be crossing a highway in a particular day, what does design... Um, uh, soil compaction below grade, what thickness of aggregate, what thicknesses of asphalt, what thicknesses of concrete that need to go in to carry that load. And so, you know, there are owners in that uh, performance security is required by most government uh, procurement. You know, the MTO used to have a pre-qualification system, but most governments, including Hamilton, have performance security. So you must purchase bid bonds when you submit a bid. So after the tenders are open, if you want to walk away because you think you're too cheap now, there's going to be a 5% cost uh, to do that. And and you'll be penalized by not being permitted to bid again for the first three years. And then you've got performance security. So if a contractor goes bust, you don't want the taxpayers to have to pay for it twice. So the contractor must buy performance bonds, which run about 8 to $10 per $1,000 of value that they include in their price so that if they don't pay their suppliers, the, the uh, uh, material bond cuts in if they don't pay for the labor. The, the labor uh, part of that bond cuts in. And and so uh, all governments and most private buyers of construction services also require this performance security, and that gets added to the cost also. So, I, you know, the two owners, where they get uh, very aggressive sometimes is on schedule. And we're rebuilding Wilson Street here in Ancaster, and schedule is very important because it's a terrible inconvenience to the public when that main road's closed. So they put aggressive schedules in, so you've you got to make sure it's resource property, which can cost money, and that's built into their price. But a typical everyday construction job, you know, uh, they put in a reasonable amount of time, but if the contractor's taken out too much work or doesn't have the resources, there's penalty clauses that get assessed against them, and sometimes, um, you know, there was incentive disincentives. And I remember bidding a project one time, if you had it done by... The winter configuration, November 15th, you got a million-dollar bonus. If your daily is a million-dollar penalty, and that forces you to watch that schedule 
And in our case, we took the million dollars off the price because we were confident we could get it done to, to be read out as low bidder, and uh, we did. But um, there's a lot, lot more involved in a project than simply the, uh, you know, the concrete and then the aggregate and the asphalt. You mentioned a couple minutes ago that with the way the, the the government bidding is done, they put forward their bids and there is no negotiation. Could that be helpful if if it was to change, if the rules were to change and you, as let's say the council determined that you were going to be the point man on a job, if Lloyd Ferguson could go and take the bids, take the low one and sit down and negotiate, would you, do you believe, be able to get those prices down considerably? Well, providing you change the spec, it's called value engineering. And, you know, we're doing the uh, investigative services building at Hamilton Police right now. It's a $25 million project. And we're trying to value engineers out a bit. So you change washroom configurations. You change, you know, some of the fit and finish and the, that's going inside the building to try to give us a contingency back to make sure it'll never go over once you get in the job. But I'm not even talking about that. I'm saying based on what you want, when you look at the markups and the profits and everything else, if you as someone who knows the business were able to negotiate with the contractor, with the builder, do you believe keeping what you need for the building, could you have got those prices down considerably? Absolutely not. Because you can only get away with that once, beating up a contractor on after he submitted the tender. If you're going to negotiate everything, what's a contractor put in his bid? He shoves it really high because he's got to give some back, and that becomes a real chess game. And uh, the owner Jenny ends up the loser because it gives them a chance if they are still low, even though they put extra money on to give it back, then they don't have to give money back. And and so um, over time, and I could tell you because we used to put out 15 of these bids a week. You get the right price going in if there's no dickering afterwards. It's simply the lowest qualified bidder is awarded the contract. One more thing that came up in this poll, and it referred to, and you know this term well, uh, I'm not, I don't want to preach it to you, but for those who weren't listening to last night, closed shop tendering. Uh, Hamilton has a, a contract with the Carpenters Union where any municipal job the co- the company that is hired to do it must be a signatory with the carpenters union and this was pointed out as being something that could bring costs way down if we didn't have this kind of contract if you were not beholden or locked in with a particular union that you had to work with if if you were to get out of that and i don't even know if you can get out of that but if you were to get out of that would that bring costs down well it brings in more competition which would generally drive down cost because, you know, that is horrible that the Ministry of Labor imposed that on, on, on the city. We had four carpenters, two signed cards that they wanted to join a union, the other one they threw because he's a supervisor. So two guys uh, signed cards, and we don't even have any carpenters on staff now. And now we have to, uh, there's a subcontract clause in what's called the Provincial Collective Agreement for all trades, including carpenters. And the subcontract clause has a clause in there that you can only subcontract to uh, people who are signatory to the carpenters union in this case. And, and it's ridiculous. The, the contract they impose on the city is the exact same one I had at Dufferin. Well, the city's not a contractor. They're an owner. But this contract they imposed on us put us in the position of being the contractor, and we can only sub to signatory contractors. We appealed that decision. We took it to Superior Court and lost at all levels. Um, because of the Ontario's labor laws. So, um, yeah, if we could you know, use, let the non-union sector have a go at it, let the CLAC unions have a go at it. Now, I, I want to make something clear to you, though, that it only applies to the ICI sector, institutional, commercial, and industrial. Road contractors don't have to be signatory to the carpenters. 
um, landscapers don't have to be signatory to the carpenters unless they're doing special concrete work, like a pavilion. Um, you know, they're putting up a, a which is a lot of lumber, in it. so they'd have to. Uh, it would have to be a, a a certified general contractor that could bid that. Uh, but we have no choice, and we went into that kicking and screaming. I mean, the whole mush sector, which is the municipalities, universities, hospitals, schools and hospitals, should not be contractors. There should be owners and should not have the subcontract imposed upon us. And and so, you know, it, it's a it's a big win for the Carpenters Union because now they get a lot more work for their members because only their members can bid on this stuff when they're swinging hammers on, on the project. So, you know, that is one example, but we have no choice in it. You're violating the labor laws, there would be a grievance filed, and we would lose and would have to pay retribution. So just so I understand this correctly, there are two people who signed cards, and they are the ones that have possibly forced the city of Hamilton to pay millions more in costs over a period of time. Yeah, you need 50% of the employees in that sector to sign cards uh, to be certified by the union. In the construction industry, you don't go to mandatory votes. They simply sign cards. And um, all other industries, you don't. If, if, if they get cards signed up, then they got to have a secret ballot vote. In the construction industry, you don't. And that's something that the liberals give away back in Dalton McGinty days. And um, so, yeah, we had th- four, four carpenters, one foreman and three carpenters. And so there were three who were uh, non-management, who said they wanted the union sign the cards, and then the whole city certified? It's bizarre. Okay, and so right now we know that the provincial liberal government is not going to try to make enemies with any kind of union, so that's not going to change now. But let's say they were voted out. Let's say Kathleen's wins government is voted out next election, and whoever wins, and again, if it was the NDP, again, they're not going to go after the union. So if the Conservatives were to win, could they change that law and if they change that law could hamilton be released from that deal absolutely yeah all the way and we've been lobbying the province we've been down to see the government and there's a conservative member um his name is michael harris that happens to be the exact same name of the former premier he's from the waterloo area uh and we've met with him to try to get um the legislation changed so that the the mush sector at least the municipality sector but the whole mush sector should be deemed as non-construction employers. If they did that, this would all go away. And how much do you think, roughly, would we save in a year or in 10 years? Would it be significant? You, know, you can't guess that, because you don't know, uh, that, and that's one of the problems. How many more contractors would bid on this work? You know, the number of 10% has been cast around, but the, there, there's, you can't put science to it, because we're getting three bidders instead of 12 bidders, how much would be saved if we had seven or eight more bidders on every project? You can't measure that. What would be your guess, though? I mean, are we talking thousands or possibly over a decade millions? As a guess. Oh, it's big money. Big money, right. Okay, so it's not an insignificant thing to have this hanging no. on us. That's why we work so hard to try to get this reversed through the courts and uh, lobbying the province, but you're right. The, uh, the liberals are very union friendly, and, and there's a lot of unionized uh, people out there. And the unions do an amazing job at lobbying government, uh, far better than business does, in my view. Um, because I used to have 27 collective agreements at Dufferin, and and I always consider the unions my um, my business partner because they're in a competitive environment when you're with a contractor, because we could we had non-union competitors bidding against us because we weren't the ICI sector. And uh, I know I'm using acronyms on here, and I should spell it right out. ICI is Institutional Commercial Industrial. 
which is where we're signatures. So if you're building a fire hall, if you're building a hockey rink, if you're building a city hall, any building requires us to uh, contract only to those that are signatory to the Carpenters Union. And so, you know, they have to look at how many of those we do a year. Clearly, our biggest construction is roads. Uh, the, we were able to get a deal with um, with the union on the uh, sewage treatment plant, the big expansion. That's a, a 450, I think it is, million dollar expansion. And uh, they agreed that if, if consortiums put in prices, only one of those two contractors in that consortium had to be signatory to the carpenters because they just want to make sure the guys doing the forming are, in fact, members of the carpenters union. It is uh, it is an interesting, certainly frustrating at times, but an interesting discussion. Uh, Councillor Ferguson, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Anytime, Scott. Bye-bye. Well, so there's there's what we're going to be waiting to see because Councillor Skelly yesterday said that when council resumes, when council gets back together, she is going to be pursuing this and finding out why it is that costs are so high. Councillor Ferguson says they're high because they're high. The one area where you might be able to really cut back on stuff is out of their control. It would only possibly change with a change at the provincial level if probably the Conservatives got in. Because again, the Liberals aren't going to change it, it looks like, and the NDP certainly would appear to be disinclined to do something not favorable to unions. That's not their thing. We will see. But 90%, to go back, 90% of you believe that tax dollars are being frittered away on infrastructure, that we're spending too much money. You can decide which or none or both of the councillors and which parts that you think you agree with. But there's the two explanations for what's going on. Hope that was a little bit, little bit helpful, maybe more frustrating than anything, but hope it was a little helpful. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I am assuming that most of you are familiar or at least have heard of the series 13 Reasons Why. It's it's on Netflix. Some of you will have watched it. Some of you will be aware of it. Some of you know nothing about it. Essentially, uh, it's, it's very controversial because basically it is a series based around the suicide of a high school student and the situation or situations that led to that. Now, since it's been released, and we found this out through a story just then, a study that came out just the other day, since it was released back in, I believe, March, the number of searches for topics related to suicide on Google has apparently shot up by something like 900,000, 900,000 additional searches. And these are not all for suicide prevention. If they were all things about how do I help my friend who's feeling suicidal, you would say, huh, that could be a very positive thing. There, some are, but they're not all that. In fact, while some of those searches rose for ways to help or to deal with depression or suicide, the phrase how to commit suicide rose 26% above what it normally would have been during that time. That is worrisome. I think to anybody listening, to anyone who hears this, that is worrisome that since this movie has come out, since this thing has been brought into the light of day and this topic is being talked about more, more people are typing in how to commit suicide. Whether they intend to or not is not clear. It's just that the fact that they are. 
doctor who is behind the study that led to this story says the time for rhetorical debate is over. While 13 Reasons Why has certainly caused the conversation to begin, it's raised awareness, and we do see a variety of suicide-related searches increasing. Our worst fears were confirmed, the doctor said. That is, thousands of people, thousands more are searching online about ways to kill themselves. My next guest is one of Canada's leading experts on suicide. His resume is way too long for me to go through right now. Let me just tell you, he has been the Deputy Chief of Psychiatry at St. Uh, Michael's Hospital in Toronto. He has received the Canadian Association for Suicide Prevention Research Award for outstanding contributions to the field. He has held the role of the Arthur Sommer Rotenberg Endowed Chair in Suicide Studies at the University of Toronto for the past 15 years. His name is Dr. Paul Links, and he joins me now. Doctor, thanks for doing this today. Hi, Scott. As I read all these things and we hear the other doctors who are, did this study and looked at the, in the how many people are now looking stuff up and, and, and they express their concerns, do you share the same concerns about this? I do. Um, I haven't watched 13 Reasons, but I'm aware of it, and I, and I do share the same concerns. And here's the thing, because for many, many years, the the thing that I have kept hearing, and I think most people have heard, is that we need to talk about these things. We need to bring these topics out into the open. We need to put them in the sunlight and deal with them. And this will help people if the topic of suicide is broached and we need to deal with this stuff. And I'm wondering though, as you hear this kind of thing, is that really the case? Is bringing it out into the open helping or is it normalizing it or making it almost seem like it's a more realistic option for some people? I think it's it's the manner in which uh, suicide is reported. So it's certainly not that we don't want uh, people to be talking about it, the media to be talking about the issue, but it really comes to how it's done. And I think uh, we know there's good evidence that if you don't do it properly, you can create more harm than good. Okay, and so in a case like this where you have a series that is being watched I would argue primarily by teenagers or young adults who don't have your background in suicide study, who don't have a many experts background in it. And so it's them watching this by themselves, seeing it, or they and their friends talking about it. Is that a positive thing to have happen? Well, again, I think it's the way in which uh, this uh, show uh, presents the suicide. It, it you know, my understanding is it presents a very simplistic sort of picture of suicide. And suicides are complex and multi-determined. And one of the things we know for most suicides, it's very closely related to mental illness. So I don't think this correctly informs people about the nature of suicide. Let me go back for a second to the idea that about, and this is what we're talking about, but about talking about this in public. Now, again, you bring up the point. It's how you do it. But one of the things that is said is we want to remove the stigma. I've heard that said a number of times recently. We want to remove the stigma of suicide. Do we really want to remove the stigma of suicide? I don't, I'll be honest with you. I don't exactly know what people mean when they say that. Because to me, it seems like if we remove the stigma, we sort of say it's almost okay. And that to me, maybe those are two different things, but that to me seems like not what we should be doing. Well, I think uh, I would say that there is a value in reducing stigma related to suicide. 
and suicide is so closely related to mental illness and problems with addiction that there's tremendous overlap. And we know that uh, in many cases, people don't come forward for help because of the stigma, say, associated with mental illness. Okay. So I think it's in that regard that we do we do want to remove the stigma. We do want to have a public discussion, but it's all about how we do that in a careful and appropriate way. Okay, so again, I, I'm, I'm going to play a role here now. I'm someone who is suffering through a, a horrible depression. I'm feeling somewhat suicidal. How does either seeing this show or having this show direct me to someone, how does that, and I, and I, I don't want to sound like I'm being flip about this. I'm not in any way, but how would that help me? How would that get me past the idea that I want to follow through? Well, we know that, uh, say, if you were a family member of that person, uh, it, it's appropriate to open up the topic. If you're worried about the person's safety, it's, it's quite appropriate to talk to them, uh, even discuss, you know, are they feeling suicidal? Because in that uh, person-to-person basis, talking about suicide can be very supportive, and it does open the door for helping that person get help. So again, I mean, I think there is clearly a role for making the public more aware about suicide, um, but it's in the context that, you know, we inform people. Now, there was a study, and I don't know how credible it was, but I was reading about it today, a study in, from London, England in 2014 among many family doctors, not experts in suicide, and many of them, I think it was 25% or 30%, believed that a, bringing up the topic of suicide with their patients, they were worried that it could lead to self-harm or put thoughts in people's mind of suicide. Do you buy that? Do you believe that you could actually inject an idea into someone's head if they hadn't already been thinking about it? Yeah, and I think the research is clear about this, is that talking about suicide does not put people at risk. It actually can be a very helpful step. And we we did some research ourselves that showed that even with people who were quite suicidal, to have the discussion and to, you know, sort of explore it in the context of your work with patients was very helpful, and it, and it didn't make people more at risk. Does that go for anybody? If I have a friend, and again, I, I said right off the top, I am so far from an expert in this. If I have a friend who expresses to me feelings of being suicidal, should I be having that discussion with them? Or should the first thing I be doing saying, no, 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 go talk to someone who actually knows what they're talking about? No, it's appropriate to open up the discussion, try to find out how the person's feeling and sort of what they're thinking about. Obviously, you may need to tell a person, look, this is not something I can really help you with, but I'll take you for help, and then going to the appropriate resources. But it is appropriate in that kind of context you're talking about to open up the topic. That usually allows a person to feel supported that, you know, you're understanding how much they're suffering. For the longest time, though, uh, it was a, a standard practice, I think, in the media particularly, that you did not report on suicides. I think the exception was A, if it was someone incredibly famous, or B, if it was done in a way that was, you know, everyone in the city or in a certain area knew because of some distraction or something that had happened, so everyone was aware. Media did not cover suicides as a rule, uh, mainly because they were fear of people imitating. They were a fear of people being copycats. Was that line of thinking then wrong? No, I think uh, we we do believe that, you know, most suicides is, individual events, uh, you have to be very cautious about reporting them. And you have to be very cautious about if you, you know, if there's a need to report it, because as you say, it's very newsworthy, 
you have to be very cautious about uh, discussing the methods of the suicide. So again, it really comes to how you report it. Obviously, some suicides because of the the prominence of the person or you know just the specific events will be a newsworthy event. But it it comes to the uh, approach and the way you do it. And there is, a, I'm sure you know, media guidelines that are there to use the most appropriate method. Because it seems that in recent weeks, months, and again, I'm not even putting the timing of this to the start of when 13 Reasons Why it came out. It just seems recently we have seen a lot of stories in the media about celebrities in particular who have committed suicide, more than I can remember in the past. And I'm trying to think, is this just that the media is covering it differently now and is reporting on these things where they might not have before, or are there more suicides actually happening? Yeah, I, I can't really comment if there's more uh, celebrity suicides. I don't I don't think in Canada our suicide rate has dramatically changed. Um, and again, if it's a, you know, a celebrity, I think the media for a long time has felt that's newsworthy. Um, so I don't really know that there's been a change in that. But of course, our attention to the subjects have been elevated by this uh, 13 Reasons show. I, I've heard the phrase, though, suicide contagion. Now, I don't know if that's an established phrase that is used by experts, but is that a phrase that would be used by someone like you or, or other people in the industry? Yes. Uh, and explain think, that then. What does that mean? So suicide contagion is a, a bit of what it says. It, suicide can uh, affect people uh, in and around uh, a near suicide. So, for example, if a classmate was to suicide, it can put other kids in the school at risk and they can be more likely to have suicidal behavior or, or to suicide. In the same way, we know that uh, the media, if there's uh, stories, either nonfictional or fictional, uh, and they get a lot of play, that that can put people who are already at risk, uh, you know, can sort of put them, tip them over to, to be suicidal and act on that. So is this kind of what would be behind? Now, I understand that the circumstances in some of these places are terrible, but when we hear of these clusters of suicide in Indigenous communities in northern Canada, would that be, would your expectation be this is a suicide contagion kind of thing? I think some of those would certainly meet the definition, so that there would be a contagion effect where they've they've been influenced by somebody they knew. Now, not all suicides are, are sort of proximal in time are clusters, but... Yes, that certainly happens in adolescents in Aboriginal communities. It happens in the general community. It's a bit more common than in adolescents and youth and, say, middle age and older. Just before I let you go, uh, this is what it really comes down to. Is it, and I, I again, i got to stress, I, don't, I really don't have an opinion on this. I really don't know the answer to this. Is it healthy to talk about everything? Are there things that we should say, no, you know what, it's just those things don't necessarily need to be talked about, we, or they need to be dealt with a little more privately? Or is it, as a psychologist, psychiatrist, is it really healthy to talk about everything with people and get it all out into the open? Well, again, in the context of the topic we're talking about, suicide, uh, you know, I think some of the guidelines are we don't want to be, like, discussing or reporting on the specifics of methods. Uh, that's not going to be helpful. And, you know, kind of romanticizing or being very simplistic in under, understanding of suicide, that's not going to be helpful. It's a complex issue. But it's not that we're trying to stop discussion of suicide, because that's not helpful. 
Dr. Paul Links, uh, really appreciate the time today. Thank you so much for taking it. Okay. Appreciate it. It's a, it's a, look, I, I am, I am still, he, he's a very well-spoken, very educated, very expert doctor in this field, a billion times more knowledge than I will ever have in this area. And probably most of us will ever have in this area. I do wonder still at times about whether or how much, I guess, we should be talking about this in public. It seems to me that there is value in talking about these things when someone has an issue. You don't want them to hold it all inside and never have anyone to reach out to. That's not what I'm talking about. But it seems to me we've had lots of talk about these things recently, and I'm not sure whether it's actually changing anything. I don't know. Maybe it is. I'd love to hear from you what, what you think on this issue. Whether free, unfettered discussion of these very difficult topics is, if you believe that it is truly helping or if you believe that it's putting thoughts, putting ideas into people's minds. I When I look at this study, this story today or this week that says so many people are typing in how to commit suicide into Google since this movie came out, that it can't be a coincidence. It cannot be a coincidence that all of a sudden this many people are typing in this phrase. There has to be something that is leading to that question. It can't be a coincidence that suddenly so many people have questions about that particular thing. And I'm hoping and praying that the people who are typing that in are not thinking about it for whatever weird reason they've just decided to look it up for, I don't know, some sort of weird educational thing. But man, if, if, if it's not that, if these are people who truly are having problems and they're now typing it in because something has spurred them out, it's, it's very, it's confusing to me. I don't know if it's confusing to you. I hope that interview helped. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. There's a story on the Financial Post today, which I thought I found really interesting. I want to ask you about. The lines will be open here because I want to hear from you. There is a great deal of concern, apparently, apparently, in the Canadian housing sector, Canadian housing market, whatever else, not just with housing owners, house owners, but with real estate agents, with builders, with a lot of other people that this market is starting to really cool and things are going to get a little bit scary in that market that real estate agents, their jobs are maybe not going to be there. At least there's not going to be enough jobs for everybody. But more importantly, that your house is not going to retain its value. Some friends of ours just had their house up for sale. If they had put that house up for sale a year ago, it would have sold, I'm willing to bet you, within two to three days. It's a beautiful house. And I thought it was priced fairly, and it's in great condition, and it's in a desirable location, and it took them a long time to sell because when they put it up was right around the time that the provincial government started to put things in place to try and slow down the housing market a little bit and interest rates were going up a little bit, even though it was only a quarter point. But I want to ask you this. 
Are you concerned if you own your own home or condo or whatever other thing you own, are you concerned about your property? Are you concerned about the value of your home? Is this something that you're sitting there saying, man, I am, I am getting a little distressed when I look at some of the numbers and some of the things going on, things aren't selling as fast. I mean, it's happened like that overnight. It's just all of a sudden happened, but things seem to have slowed down. Are you concerned by that? 905-645-3221, star 9900. Does this cause you stress to think about your house and the value of your house? Because it does for a lot of people. I mean, look at, I don't think there are too many people out listening who have any other investment in their life larger than their house. I'm sure there are a few exceptions. I mean, some people may own their own business which could be a bigger investment than their house. Some people could actually just have massive investments out there. I don't know. Maybe maybe we have the wealthiest audience in Hamilton listening to the show. I hope so. Man, that'll be great. Buy all the advertisers' products if you are. But for most people, their house is the investment. The house is what they're looking at as what they want to pass on to their children. Someday, many, hopefully many years down the road, the house is perhaps what they're hoping to sell and live on in their retirement. Having a valuable house, your house, that is the value. That is your life's net worth for many people. Does that concern you? When you hear about the housing market, apparently across Canada showing signs of softening and weakening. Does that worry you? 905-645-3221, star 9900. Reuters news agency polled a bunch of analysts who said there will be a, it is very likely that there is going to be a sharp housing correction in Vancouver and Toronto. A sharp housing correction. Now, we are not Vancouver or Toronto here in Hamilton, but we do know that the Hamilton housing market has grown and taken off and flourished in direct response to the Toronto housing market. The cost, the prices of homes, and if you're trying to get in, this is great news for you. If you're, Maybe I should be asking the other question. If you're just trying to break into the market, are you thrilled with this development? But the fact is, Hamilton's housing market has gotten incredibly hot, not because, at least on its own, not because Hamilton is just a wonderful place to be, although that's true, not just because suddenly people from all over the country are saying, you know what, I want to try Hamilton. Again, some of that is true, but by far the largest driving force behind Hamilton's housing price surge, especially in some of the previously less expensive, dare I say, previously less desirable parts of Hamilton, which are changing, has been the migration from Toronto. A lot of people who can't afford a house in Toronto suddenly say, I want to move to Hamilton. I can afford something there. But as more and more people did that, you know, the laws of supply and demand, supply goes down, demand goes up and up go the prices that led to that led to Toronto, Hamilton's prices going through the roof. That led you, perhaps if you're listening, that led you to have a more valuable property. That led you to have more in your will that you're going to pass on in your estate. 
maybe in your bank account if you sold. So hearing that there could be a sharp correction in Toronto, according to nearly half the analysts that Reuters surveyed, one, I would assume, some may not, some may tell me I'm completely wrong, but if Toronto is going to, if they believe Toronto is going to have a big correction, you would have to assume that's going to mean perhaps a little of the pressure is off the Hamilton market, maybe more than a little of the pressure. And if some of the pressure is off the Hamilton market, that's going to drive prices back down. If there's more supply, if there's less demand, our market is going to be getting softer and prices will be going down. Does that concern you or does that thrill you? Do you have kids? Do you have, are you someone, as they say, who's trying to get into the housing market? What does this do? We've had agents on, we've had real estate people, we've had heads of real estate boards, we've had all kinds of people. You can listen on here every weekend. Rick Zamprin does a great show with Rob Golfie, does a, does a real estate show. This has been a crazy market. And crazy can be positive or negative. If you're trying to get in, the idea that somehow perhaps the market could be softening up is probably a delight to you. It's probably something you're thrilled about. But if you're someone who your house is your investment, you are going to be concerned by this. Frank writes in, as long as people keep paying today's prices and they keep the house for a reasonable length of time, there will always be the group that wants to buy it for tomorrow's price. Good, well-kept properties will always be wanted. I, I Well, that last part, I suspect is absolutely true. The issue, though, is good, well-kept properties will always be wanted, but what could you get them for? And if you're someone who has one of those good, well-kept properties and the housing market is about to get a lot softer what you could get if you wanted to move will be a lot less. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Do you worry about this? Especially if you are a homeowner. Do you worry about the value of your property dropping? Do you not think about it? Do you simply live in your house and you know what, wherever the prices go, up, down, sideways, I, I have no intention of moving out of my house. So really, what the value of it is really is inconsequential. Probably. Something could always happen. Something could always come up. You never know what's around the next corner. But if everything carries on as it should I don't intend to move. My wife and I don't intend to move out of our house. So what the value of our house is, is inconsequential. But if you are older and thinking about maybe downsizing, you want to be able to get all the money you possibly can for your house. And if suddenly your property that six months ago you thought was worth 500000 is worth 400000 I would think that would sting a bit more than a little bit. KG is saying uh, the downturn is caused by Wynn's $15 minimum wage. Hmm. Not sure I'm going to go there. Maybe at some point there will be some issue to do with that. I'm not sure we're there yet. But I'd love to hear from you. If you are concerned at all 
about Hamilton's housing market or by the other side, are you looking at this saying, this is actually terrific. This is really good news that a lot more younger people who aren't necessarily able to pay three, four, five, six hundred thousand $600,000 for a home, maybe now we'll be able to get into the, ho- the Hamilton housing market. Maybe now we'll get some younger people to buy homes. Maybe now younger people will want to stay in the city. Maybe now we'll be able to continue to build this place up. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of things that you might think. It's an interesting piece to read, though. It is um, the, the headline on the piece, and I would encourage you to take a look at it. A nation of realtors in Canada is bracing for the end of the boom. And again, it's a multi-part thing here. One of them is during the housing boom, a lot of people looked at the housing market and said, wait a second, if I get my realtor's license... And I can sell, well, let's see, if I can sell a few half million dollar homes and I'm going to make commission of, let's say 5%, I think that's a little high. You could probably get four now, but let's say I'm going to sell for 5% and I'm going to sell four homes or five homes. I might be able to make some decent money over the course of the year. And then if it's not just four homes or five homes, what if I could sell 10 homes? There's a lot of people. I know I know personally a number of people who went into the real estate market as realtors because they saw this as boom times. This was the chance to make a killing. Some of these people, if the market really cools off, are going to be sitting there saying, I can't sell a home to save my life. And then if they can't sell a home, that's money they're not making. Frank joins me now. Frank, how are you tonight? I'm quite well, and you're, you're always so interesting. <laughs> you stimulate my interest to the point where I've got to... You know, my opinions come come wild. Appreciate but, that, uh, Frank. Thanks. Well, you're welcome. Uh, Scott, um, the way I see it is, uh, like, I built my house 34 years ago, and if I told you what I paid for my house, you'd say, oh, my gosh. You know, how well, tell that? me. You don't have to tell me what it's worth now. What did you pay back then? Well, I paid 130000 Okay. And and uh, back there, that would have been a nice house 34 oh, years and, ago. And, and it, was, it was a lot of money. But I look at it this way. As long as money is cheap and there's a place to make money by actually living in it and, and cherishing it, and, and actually everybody else seems to have this, the likeness of that, um, you're going to have people wanting to, to do this. When it, when it gets kind of tight and, and the money is not as cheap, there might be a, a, a bit of a dwell. I see the real estate market always as a wavy graph. It goes down, it goes up, it goes down. But that graph escalates. That's the fear, that, that escalation of it. Well, oh, and you, you, this is what you're talking about tonight. Now, that may just uh, correct itself, but uh, it seems to me, and I, you, you might agree, that there's, there's quite an invasion into this country of uh, monies from um, areas of the world that never really had a lot of money, and, and they're, they've invested in, and we've gone quite a few years after the Second World War, and there's also a lot of people that are retiring now with pretty heavy wealth uh, through their careers, and they're able to buy the high-end more. I've seen there's more and more high-end houses being bought, but the real estate market is dependent upon the lower end. Once the lower end cannot buy the next step up and the next step by the next step up and so on and so on, that's when there, there, there begins to be a little bit of a wonderment, don't you think? Well, sure. If you, you have to be able, if you're going to buy, let's say the houses now, there's a bunch of houses for sale for 600000 or 700000 If you're not someone who's been in the market for a while, there are very few people, well, maybe more now because money is cheap, but there are very few people that are going to walk in and that's going to be their first house. They need, there needs to be, as you say, a step into that. But Frank, before I go, because we've got to run here, let me ask you this. You've been in your house for, you say, 34 years. Yep. 
And you talk about the waves. The way the concern is that when the day comes that you have to sell, either to, to move on to somewhere else, and I'm hoping as many years from now, that you want to make sure that when you're selling, you're at the top of one of those waves, not at the bottom of one of those waves. Um, yes and no. Uh, the, the bottom of the wave for me, as, as I said what I paid for my house, the bottom of the wave for me would have to be pretty low, really <laughs> a bottom wave for me to say this wasn't worth it. Fair you know, enough. Just, can I just say one more thing? Please. Uh, the, the, the building industry is, is um, governed by the builders. As long as they buy land and they put things up and, they, and they, they, they're the ones who put the shovel in the ground and it costs so many dollars a foot to build a house and they demand it and people... See, back in my day, people used to barter a little bit more. Today, people just go right in, they, got big, they get a mortgage easy and they go for it. So that stimulates buying in another sense. But it's, a, it's an interesting subject, though. It, it has varying ways of looking at it and I think people will differ one way or the other depending on their circumstances. Frank, thanks for the call. I always appreciate it. Uh, I, look, I, I, Frank has, by the sounds of it, feels very good that he's been in his house for 34 years. The value has gone up. So even if it dips a little bit, he's more than got his money's worth. And that's fantastic. It's fantastic that he is able, and I think other people probably are in the same boat, are able to feel good about whatever they're going to get for their house when the day comes that they have to unload it. But I think there's a lot of nervous people right now. I do. I think there's a lot of nervous people, especially... I got to go to break, especially if you are someone who has just gotten into the housing market. If you've just jumped into the housing market and you've taken out a $250,000 mortgage and you put, let's say you save 50,000 somehow. So you had a $300,000 house and you've got a $250,000 mortgage and the housing market dips and now your house is only worth 230 or 240,000. Now, you know what? Now you are the one who is probably looking at this going, oh, this is scary. Someone like Frank, who's had a lifetime in his house, he, he can he can live with that stuff. He can live with that loss if that's a loss, a little bit of a dip. Not someone who's already in for the full measure and bought in at the height of the housing boom. That's where it gets tricky. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.